You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Madeline Martin about her new historical novel, The Keeper of Hidden Books. Ms. Martin is a New York Times and international bestseller, author of historical fiction and historical romance novels. Welcome to the show, Madeline. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, in reading your bio, I saw that you were an army brat and that you, at least in part, attribute your uh, moving around to your love of history. Where was, where was your family stationed? Uh, my parents were stationed in Germany for three separate tours. Okay. So the first one was in Darmstadt, and then the second one was um, Würzburg, and then the third one was Bad Kreuznach. So I spent collectively about 12 years in Germany, and we really did a lot of traveling outside of Germany as well. We really embraced life there and just and just embraced a whole European living experience and got to travel all over, and I, I really loved getting to see castles and learning the history of everything. And tour guides have such a magical way of bringing things to life. And I think that really very much influenced me and my love of history. Well, you know, I'm going to ask you some questions about writing historical fiction, but let me, let me ask you something else. I, in looking at the books that you've written, the bestsellers, it includes these titles, The Last Bookshop in London, The Librarian Spy, and now The Keeper of Hidden Books. I'm detecting a theme. What is, it, <laughs> what is it about books that entices you to write about them or to have them as a key aspect of your writing? You know, I think it's just that um, books and, and reading is such a ubiquitous part of my life. I've always been such a diehard reader. And so I'm always either thinking about a book that I've read or something I read about in a book one time or thinking about a book I want to read or whatever the case may be. I feel like it really incorporates such so many different aspects of my life. Um, and so for me, whenever I'm like developing these characters, it's just they tend to be readers as well because it is just such a, a great way to tie in my readers with myself <laughs> or my readers my characters with myself, <laughs> I but I guess my readers as well, because yeah. I have a lot of a lot of readers who love books about books. Well, let me ask you this: since you're saying that, you know, we always wonder. I think as as readers, where writers get their ideas from. Do you ever find that you get a kernel of an idea or whatever from for your writing from something else that you have read? Absolutely, a lot of the ideas for books that I've read came from reading articles on history. So, um, like with the last bookshop in London, it was reading about the bombing of Paternoster Row in um, December 1940. For the librarian spy, it was reading about um, the librarians who were sent from America into neutral countries during World War II to gather intel and how woefully undertrained they really were for those roles. Right. Um, and with the library or with the keeper of hidden books, really that one was reading about um, the incredible Polish underground and the resistance group that they really. Um, how cohesive they were during Nazi occupation. Well, I w I'm going to ask you a little bit more specifics about the book itself, but let me ask one more kind of general question, if I might. So yeah. many historical novels, or what claim to be historical novels, simply set a story within a historical time period. There are others that I've read that have, uh, we might call them asides, as you're reading along, setting out, say, a paragraph or a couple of sentences about the particular history your novels have a lot of actual history in them, weaved into the story. How do you know how much actual history to put in the novel 
without breaking up the narrative? It's so hard, (laughs) (laughs) especially because I do so much research. With The Keeper of Hidden Books, for example, I used over 100 nonfiction books to put together my research. I was in Warsaw for two weeks. And at the end of it, I had over 15 spiral-bound notebooks that were hand, completely full of handwritten notes. Uh-huh. And um, it's funny because in an interview, somebody said, well, how much of that actually makes its way into the book? And I thought about it, and I realized, oh, my gosh, I think it's really just about 30%. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, so even though maybe only 30% of that research goes into the book, I feel like the other 70% really is what helps that world come alive in my head mm-hmm. and what helps me make that world come alive on the page as well. So even if um, if like historical details and facts aren't necessarily spelled out on the page, I still feel like they make their way like sort of seeped into the story itself as a whole and the interactions of the characters, the creation of them, the backdrop, all of it. it so, that, um, yeah. but it's... Go ahead. No, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So do you find when you're doing your redrafts, because I'm assuming you do redrafts, that one of the things you end up doing is deleting some of the history that you initially put in? Actually, I add more. (laughs) Okay, good. Good. Yeah. So I usually I'm like, oh, you know what? I bet I can I can add this little information here because I also never really stop doing my research as I'm writing my book mm-hmm. all the way through copy edits, which I'm sure probably drives my editors crazy. Um, but, you know, you never know what little nugget of information you might uncover that really just um, just really adds so much more to the book. So um, so I have a tendency to add more rather than take out. <laughs> OK, well, all right. Let's talk about the new book in the new book, The Keeper of Hidden Books. It is set in Warsaw, Poland, during the Nazi invasion and occupation. Now, you just talked a little bit about the research that you had done on, uh, I guess, the occupation as well as the invasion in order to write the novel. Was there a th- were there things that you learned? I mean, you may have had a general understanding, but were there things that you learned in doing your research that really surprised you? Oh, yes, so much. Um, I, you know, I really didn't have a strong um, feel for Warsaw and what okay. really happened mm-hmm. um, in Warsaw during the Nazi occupation. Um, obviously, we all know that um, that what happened within the Warsaw ghetto, like right. the atrocities that happened there, um, um, and how horrible and heartbreaking they all were. But there was really a lot of persecution that went on with the Poles as well, and um, and just you know learning about the Warsaw Uprising, how incredibly brave all of those men and women were, how the men and women who fought in the Warsaw Uprising are actually still honored today. Um, In fact, the book came out on August 1st, and it really was a very humbling and and beautiful experience because um, August 1st was the day that the Warsaw Uprising happened, where after five years of Nazi oppression, those men and women were finally able to stand up and push back and so even today, um, on August 1st at 5 p.m., when technically the war, the, the, the uprising began, happened, the entire city goes completely silent, except for all of the alarms and sirens at Blair in honor of those brave men and women. Right. So, um, I mean, there really was just, um, you know, Warsaw is just a city that has such a wealth of history and bravery and um, and also heartbreak and sorrow. I mean, there really were so... Um, so many horrible things, the people that were killed, but also 85% of the city was destroyed when the Nazis left. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, and they rebuilt based off of all the chunks of rubble that they kind of have these old pieces of building with new materials built around it. So it's almost like a citywide jigsaw puzzle of putting it all back together. It, it really is just as incredible. Well, you know, in your book, The Keeper of Hidden Books, um, 
your heroes, not all of them, but most of the, the significant ones like Sophia, whatever, are, are not the heroes we would traditionally think of, you know, carrying a gun, leading an army, those types of things. We might say right. to some degree they're unsung heroes or whatever. Um, how did you learn about them? So I found these incredible journals that were written by Warsaw's public librarians that were written during the actual Nazi occupation that detailed their efforts in not only recovering and salvaging books from destruction from the Nazis, but also um, keeping them in a hidden location and even running secret underground libraries when all of the libraries in those cities were forced into closure. And, you know, it seems like such a simple thing, oh, books. But the thing is, when you have, when you're in a such a desolation, such a desolate place and you have no sense of hope, sometimes something as small as a book really can give you hope and it can offer some lightness in such an otherwise dark world. And it's, it's brave men and women like um, the women who inspired Yanina and Sophia's characters who were able to do that and who were able to still provide that for people. Well, you know, when the book starts off, Sophia and Janina are reading Helen Keller's The Story of My Wife, okay, which we're going to talk yes. about in that it's one of the banned books, one of the books that Hitler ends up banning. How did you come to pick that pick that book, though, as your starting point? I'm curious. So I always have been really fascinated by um, Helen Keller's well, because when she, um, let me start start over. That's okay. But basically, when Helen Keller after World War One, um, she actually gave all of the proceeds from I think it was from that book, or she just donated a significant amount of money to the German soldiers who were blinded in battle by World by um, in World War One, and and before World War Two in 1935, when all the books were being burned in Berlin. Her books were among those. And I just can't imagine what a slap in the face that that must have been for her. You know, this this country that she was hoping to support and give grace to. And her book is one of the books that's being burned in that first huge bonfire in Berlin. Go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted. And and so, yeah, so that's why I just, I thought, you know, I think this is going to be the perfect one for them to start their sort of anti-Hitler book club. Uh, which obviously the name gets better as right, the book goes right, on. Right. But that's sort of why I thought that was a good one to start with. Well, you know, she's a fascinating character. Most of us think of her just, if you're old enough like me, to having seen the movie when it first came out. But, you know, she was a founding member of the ACLU. She was an active member of the Socialist Party of America. Uh, Keller was all of that. Um, yeah. And most people she don't realize She was an incredible that. woman. Yeah. All right. So yeah. after after reading the story of my life, they then set out to read Kafka's Metamorphosis. These are both books that were some of the many that Hitler had banned in Germany. So the ladies are reading banned books. I have to ask you, did it dawn on you as you were writing how relevant that issue is to today in America? I'm embarrassed to say no, just because I, I put blinders on when I write. So when I was writing this book, my sole focus of this book was World War II and what exactly was happening in that time. And it wasn't actually until I was working on my galleys, um, which the galleys are sort of the last thing that you read through before it goes Mm -hmm. to print. And I was admittedly procrastinating. And I was looking online and I was just reading through some of the local news because I am in Florida. And I was reading about some of the books that were being banned. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like that's when it hit me how incredibly 
and unfortunately relevant this book is even today. Um, and, and I hope that because I kind of did it um, unintentionally, that it doesn't come across as having an agenda, that it really is just genuinely illustrating why these books are so incredibly important for people to read. Yeah, I don't think it can. We certainly didn't come across as an agenda to me. I think it's a wonderful way to raise an issue to prompt people, if they want to, to think about right. it uh, going forward. Um, and, you know, speaking of current issues, the book obviously delves into anti-Semitism as Janina is Jewish. Um, what did your indiv- and, you know, and Sophia has to decide what she will do uh, and risk in order to save right. her friend. What research did you do or what did your research show about individual Poles who helped their Jewish neighbors during the occupation? Well, I mean, they were putting themselves at incredible risk. Yeah. Um, for example, you know, like when the Nazis occupied France, for example, they treated the um, the general pop- public with kid gloves. I mean, they were very like courteous and everything. When it came to the Polish population, um, you know, they really wanted to actually kill off and arrest most of the Polish population and keep the remaining amount um, with very stunted uh, knowledge and, and education and use them really for slave labor. So they did not, they, they took off those kid gloves when they were in Poland. And so, for example, if somebody was, if there was a whole entire apartment building and one family was hiding somebody who was Jewish and it was found out about that, everybody in that building would either be killed or arrested. And um, even though they had no knowledge of it. Uh, so it was incredibly, incredibly dangerous for people to um, to help Jewish people. And they did that intentionally because they didn't want any help to be offered. The Nazis did that intentionally because they didn't want any help to be offered to the Jewish population. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed, and I don't know if this is in your author's note at the end or somewhere in the book I'm forgetting, but Hit, Hit, I think you said this, Hit, one, Hitler's original plan as it related to Poland's population, was to wipe out like 85%. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, that is correct. Okay. And you also touch on this in the novel, and and I I think people sometimes, when they think about war, when they think about occupation, they don't think about culture. Um, What was Hitler's plan as it related to Polish culture, and in particular its literature? He really wanted to completely rip it out by its roots and throw it away. Because without culture, the people have so much less to, I guess, color their lives and, and gives them that, that power to kind of fight with. So, um, and that's where I felt like the Polish underground, the Polish resistance really was so incredible. They had this um, incredibly mapped out system where they had all these different departments. And one of them, the sole focus was on culture, where they paid um, artists and musicians and authors to still continue their craft and still continue to put out, like they would have secret art galleries that were completely clandestine where nobody could come. Like they didn't, they didn't announce it. It was only for people who were trusted. Um, same thing with music concerts. They published books that were um, written with, with pre-war dates to try and throw off anybody who might think that new books were being published. I mean, it really was incredible what they did to try to ensure the longevity of that culture for Poland. You know, what it did for me, and I, I think this is going to be true for other readers as well, and it's just really excellent, is it raised that issue of the loss of culture or the attempt to wipe out culture uh, for me and, and hopefully for others uh, to consider as they read it. 
Now, I read, and I think this was in your author's note, that by the end of the war, something like 15 million books in Poland were actually destroyed. Um, but right. again, one of the centerpieces of your book is that there were folks like Sophia and her friends that tried to save as many as possible. Um, how, and again, how did you learn about them? About all of the books that were destroyed? No, about the folks who actually went about, you mentioned like the Warsaw Public Library, the folks that right. actually went about trying to save as many books as they can. Significant amounts of research. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it really, it really was, um, it was not easy. Um, it was not easy to find. Yeah. It took a lot of digging. Um, it also took incorporating friends who speak Polish and who live in Poland to help send books to me that I couldn't find in America. Um, Google Translate was also <laughs> part of my hero <laughs> and being able to translate some of those pages. Um, learning a little bit of Polish myself to kind of try to have a stronger grasp on the language. Um, but it really was very difficult to find, especially because most of the information written about it actually happened during the war. Right. And they obviously couldn't be thoroughly detailed with that because if it came, if it fell into the wrong hands, it would obviously put a stop to the entire operation. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize, especially because today books are so readily mass printed, and, um, you know, something that to really think about is, a, is when you think about 15 million books destroyed, this isn't like 15 million copper, copies of like Catcher in the Rye. This is 15 million books, some of which there was only ever that one copy that might have been hand printed in the 1400s. And all of the information in that one book is lost forever, except that's only one book out of 15 million. How many more books might have been in that particular boat? So when you think about the ultimate loss of what that 15 million books entails, it really could be decades and, and if not centuries of knowledge based off of those books that are gone forever and will never be able to be replicated. You know, that's a wonderful point um, that I hadn't thought about. Now, in the book, you have fictional characters, uh, but you also have some historical characters like uh, Basis Berman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And Mayor Starzynski. Um, Correct. Tell us a bit about. She seemed to be the more fascinating character to me, although he's a very strong character too. Tell me. Tell us a little bit about Basia Berman, uh, who I think worked at the Warsaw Public Library, if my memory is correct. That's correct. So, um, so technically, it, her name is Barbara, and it's pronounced uh, Basha. Okay. And um, because uh, that's how they—that's like their yeah, um, yeah. shortened word for Barbara. And so she really was just such an incredible woman. So first of all, the fact that it, she was a Jewish woman working for the Warsaw Public Library was already an incredible feat. Um, unfortunately, anti-Semitism was something that the Jewish population faced in Poland or in Warsaw, Poland in general, prior to the occupation. And it was just exacerbated by Nazi uh, propaganda. But Basha, um, she did work at the public library and when she ended up going into the Warsaw Ghetto, she founded something that was called Centos. And she operated it like it was an orphan's care facility, but really it was secretly an orphan, um, I'm sorry, it was actually a children's library. Uh -huh. And a lot of the children who were in the Warsaw Ghetto came from assimilated families, so they only spoke Polish. And so she made it a point to not only have books in Yiddish, but also in Polish, so that the kids could read both languages, and she sought to teach all of, a lot of the children who didn't speak Yiddish, Yiddish. Mm -hmm. So when the children would check out a book, they actually got two. They got one in Polish and one in Yiddish to encourage them to learn 
to speak the language of their people. And, um, and she ended up eventually escaping from the Warsaw Ghetto. And when she did escape, her efforts still didn't stop there. She ended up helping to smuggle people out of Warsaw, I'm sorry, out of the Warsaw Ghetto right. and help to keep them in homes outside of the ghetto. And um, Jewish people who were living in secret on the Polish side had a very difficult existence. It was, um, I think the average, um, the average hiding spot lasted maybe one month. And they had to constantly be relocated. They were constantly being, um, you know, having to pay bribes. I mean, it it really was an incredibly difficult situation. And she worked tirelessly to to never, ever stop helping others. You know, she's a fascinating person. Um, I I knew a little bit about her, and I I did some additional research after I read your book, which is another thing that I think is really important uh, for folks listening and and for reading this book, as, as well as other historical novels. And I'm sure you're aware of this. It's kind of a spinoff. You read something about somebody, and it prompts you to go learn more about it. And this book certainly does that, folks. Um, all right, well, here's a, another question for you as an author. So when you have both fictional and historical figures in a book, what role it, it, do the fictional characters help explicate some of the historical things that the historical figures did? Tell me about that. So really... Well, first of all, I'd like to say that my fictional characters ultimately are sort of an amalgamation of okay. all of the non-fictional um, occurrences that I have read happening to people. So it's like I really, um, these fictional characters and everything that they go to go through have actually happened from firsthand accounts that I have read from many, many, many different people. Okay. Um, my primary reason for having fictional characters instead of non-fictional characters as the lead protagonist is um, it's just because I don't want to insert my own thoughts and feelings into somebody who actually existed. For example, with Marta Krakowska, who mm-hmm. is the author in the book, um, and she initially I was going to have her be a real author who had uh, existed. However, I wanted the advice that she gives to Sophia to be a little bit misleading. And I wanted to to make that misleading information kind of come from a bitterness of what she'd gone through in her life. And my goal with this book was to highlight the brave men and women of Warsaw, Poland. And I didn't want to impose a bitterness on somebody who maybe didn't have it in real life. And so that's why I created my own character so that I could do whatever I wanted to with her from an emotional perspective without ever sullying the, the image or the thoughts of somebody who actually did exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it makes perfect sense. That's a, that's a great explanation. Well, let me ask you this. You know, writers, will tell, writers of fiction will tell me often that they live with their characters. You know, they may live with them for a year, two years, three <laughs> years, whatever. Um, and they will also say, surprisingly, I think, to some listeners from some of the feedback we get, that if you have a good fictional character that you create, they actually help write the story. Is that also true with historical fiction and characters like Sophia and Janina and the other ones? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, when I do my research for my characters, I don't just look at that one particular time period that I'm writing about. I actually look at the um, history of the government, the economy, of society in general, and and that helps shape who the character is. So, for example, with Sophia's character, you know, um, with Poland, they were occupied by Russia for over 120 years. 
they were granted their, um, Poland was granted its independence after the First World War in 1918 with the Treaty of Versailles. They had just celebrated 20 years of independence when the Nazi occupation happened. And even after the Nazi occupation, they were under Soviet control until 1990. So you're talking about a country where there was this incredibly small pocket of freedom and all of the generations leading up to and even following after were always told about how brave the men and women were who constantly fought for their freedom. I mean, who, who died for their freedom. And so that really helped to shape the character that Zofia is. So I knew that she was going to be rebellious. I knew that she was going to be a fighter and, um, and that she was going to have some fire to her because of what her and that those generations before her would have instilled in her as a person. Well, you know, so let me ask it this way. I've actually had authors tell me, and sometimes it's kind of funny, they'll say, you know, they'll start writing a chapter on a particular character, a fictional character. And if the character is well-developed enough, the character will say, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> Have you had that? They get so stubborn like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They can be terribly stubborn. <laughs> yeah, of course, to the, to the non-writer, that sounds almost psychotic. But yeah, I you know. know. <laughs> but but have you had that experience? And did you have that with this with this book? Where the... um, absolutely, I, I definitely have had that experience before. This book was significantly plotted out pretty thoroughly. Okay. So um, so for the most part, I think that the biggest issue that I had with Sophia was reining her in because uh-huh. sometimes she would get a little bit out of control and I would have to go through the edits <laughs> and be like, okay, she's a little bit too fiery here. Let's take her down. Let's and her down. I'm that, sure she didn't appreciate. <laughs> that's funny. All right. Well, let me end with this as kind of a, maybe a psychological question of sorts, but I, I've, I've asked it for fiction writers many times and I'm always interested in the answer. When you're writing a story like this or like pure fiction, and you have to put characters in certain situations and then figure out how they deal with those situations. What do you learn about yourself? And what did you learn about yourself in writing this book? Oh, goodness. That is a really good question. Um, You know, I think um, what I've learned about myself when I paint myself into corners that are hard to get out of is that I have amazing friends who are very intelligent and very patient with me Every time I phone a friend saying, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to get them out of this. (laughs) 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 And then as far as, you know, what I've learned about myself um, with writing this book is um, is that, you know, I think that I've learned that I compartmentalize significantly better than I thought possible. I will confess that doing the research for this book was very difficult. It was a very, very dark book. And the focus of the book is not the darkness or the atrocities um, that happened in Warsaw. The focus really is about the Polish spirit and and the bravery that the Polish people exhibited and what was done to preserve culture. Um, But it doesn't mean that in doing research, I only got to focus on those lighter topics. And um, and it, it really is difficult sometimes to not feel like you get buried in that and let yeah. it kind of drown you. And so I had to learn how to be able to compartmentalize, okay, I'm putting my work away and I need to focus on the lightness of my own personal life. So I, I think that this book was very strong in teaching me how to really perfect that compartmentalization. Ah. Well, you know, what I think before we end this, um, the book is not that dark to me because it's history and it's human beings, and it's the other thing is it's universal themes. Even if somebody knew nothing about Warsaw, 
I think they can read this book and many things will resonate with them and they'll identify with many of the characters, uh, hopefully in their own lives as well. So I think it's, it's really excellent in that regard. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Folks, you've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been privileged to speak to author Madeline Martin about her new book, The Keeper of the Hidden Books. It's a good one. Pick it up. Madeline, is there a website or other social media that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and about your writing? Yes, thank you. It's MadelineMartin.com, and if you look for me on social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter is at Madeline M. Martin, because apparently somebody got Madeline Martin before I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, music for the show is provided by Valerie Hunt Jester, and the show is produced by our very own Tyler O'Brien. Tune in Tuesdays at 4 p.m. and Wednesdays at 5.30 a.m. to hear the next segment of the Writer's Forum.